Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Good morning, detectives. This is pre-crime agent Cody reviewing case number 1108. Case number 1108, pre-visualized by the precogs, recorded on Holosphere. My fellow witnesses for case 1108 are Dr. Jamie and Chief Justice Mike. Good morning. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight, Minority Reports. We're actually doing a full month of Steven Spielberg-centric episodes because, well... February is a rough spot for the box office, and it's always a good time to talk about Steven Spielberg. Anyways, before we actually get into talking about police states, I do have two really dumb jokes. I couldn't find a good way to segue into my actual comments, so I'm just going to throw them out now, guys. One, I'm really glad Steven Spielberg used the name before like, we got some sort of bizarro Trump-era game show. Who is ready to report some minorities? Canned laughter. Canned laughter for days. It was really hilarious in my head. Anyways, joke two, and this is like how I've just always imagined the film, where it basically does the parody of the opening Spider-Man. Like in my version, Tom Cruise seeing himself in the precog vision just like stops the record going off needle points and just, yep, that's me. I bet you're asking how I got in this jam. And I think if they did that. Just imagine that director's cut of Minority Report, where it's the wacky adventures of Tom Cruise trying to get out of this new batch of shenanigans. As he steals a young woman from a bath. <laughs> it's okay, it was the 80s. I'll do that recut. I like this idea. It seems fun, right? A little less heavy. Expanded role for Stormare. It's great. <laughs> it's, it's all Stormare, Talking actually. dog like... voiced by Stormare. <laughs> <laughs> Who is still an evil Nazi scientist. <laughs> I didn't plan on starting on this, but fuck, we've already mentioned Stormare. In Minority Report, Tom Cruise is backed up by Peter Stormare and Tim Blake Nelson. And what an amazing job those guys have in basically like one to two scenes apiece. Just just wonderful. Like, let's get the best character actors and just sneak them into this thing. I just sneak in Coen Brothers, people. <laughs> it's... Really, I mean, the, the eye operation scene is really amazing because you're sitting there thinking, oh, this is a, quite a predicament Tom Cruise has gotten himself into. <laughs> it's very tense. And yet, in the end, Spielberg decides to go for Goofy. And uh, the guy whose life was ruined by Tom Cruise doesn't take revenge. He just replaces Tom Cruise's eyes. He helps him out. He's actually one of the more useful people in the movie to Tom Cruise. And the worst you can say is that he leaves some spoiled food in his fridge that Cruz accidentally consumes. Hey, it's Cruz's fault he didn't eat the fresh sandwich. Yeah, I'm thinking that guy's just a slob. He just left bad food out. It wasn't like he was intending for Cruz to eat it. <laughs> if he was, though, what an arch move that would be. <laughs> really, yeah. Considering you just plucked this guy's eyes out and you went, well, put new ones in like I promised. Can I say I love how, for everything Spielberg does with this movie, he decides in two completely random points in the middle of the film, to get goofy with it. This oh, do you mean to become a Terry part. Gilliam movie? <laughs> yeah, it's like, like, I love how only Spielberg could pull that off. Like, nobody could just go, we're going to completely change genre for one scene and not throw you out of this noir mystery. Even mid-scene, I would argue. Like, think of the jetpack fight, and how goofy as hell that turns in the back half of that battle. As they're blasting through apartments and kids are like playing cooking burgers. <laughs> There's a family that like has to back away from their table because the floor keeps bumping. Like it's very silly for what is just moments prior a very serious film. It just becomes jingle all the way for five minutes. Yeah. And I, I was kind of caught off guard by that. So when I was reviewing the special features on the, the Blu-ray of the movie, I thought it was really interesting because they have a very long interview with Steven Spielberg. And at one point he mentions that he kind of classifies his filmography in, into like two halves. He mentions that he has his dramas, films like Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List. And then he has his entertainment films, which Minority Report falls into. So he wants to entertain you and not make it too dark, which blew my mind. Cause I've always thought of like 
there being two Spielbergs basically fighting each other for each movie he makes, where it either ends up being mostly dark and there are some moments of levity like the jetpack scene, or there's stuff like Hook, where it's it's mostly fun for all ages, but then there is a scene where like Hook is contemplating suicide. In, in my mind, that's how Spielberg works. Like He can't stop himself from going all the way. He, he's, he pulls himself back a little bit, and he kind of throws something unexpected in there that's totally from another movie. But to have Spielberg come out and say, oh, no, 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 I didn't want to make this a drama, is something I'd never considered before from his filmography. Yeah, Spielberg is very, very much aware that there are two Spielbergs, and he seems almost delighted to let those two sides of himself bleed into each other as much as possible. Yeah. Which we definitely see in Minority Report. Yeah. I mean, the film's primarily a dark future noir, but there's still those kind of almost shocking moments of levity. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson just, for some reason, really handing up the line, when you go digging up the past, all you get is dirty. And that line is stuck with me for my entire life. He just sounds like a dude named Mo from an old like, uh, Howard Hawks movie or something. Yeah, it's it's... There's moments in there that almost reach slapstick comedy level, which is very strange considering it's about an undiscovered murder and a man who has blindly applied himself to the justice system after his son was kidnapped and murdered. Well, that's what I adore about this movie. Like, I made the joke earlier about the Stormare scene just being from a Terry Gilliam movie. But really, it, the entire second half of this movie has this very Terry Gilliam grotesque sense of humor that I've never ever seen from Spielberg before since. And this is a movie from the director of the BFG where <laughs> a cop jogs out under a bridge at night to receive drugs from an eyeless homeless man so that he can take them and forget the memory of his dead son. <laughs> Minority Report's uh, kind of an outlier in Spielberg's filmography despite it um kind of regarded as this classic piece of of sci-fi that everyone knows even if they haven't watched it in like 15 goddamn years but it's so when you actually sit down and examine it if you told me you know spielberg didn't direct this i'd believe you <laughs> uh, totally like uh, I, you watch war of the worlds um which is in the same vein it's uh one of spielberg's more serious films but it's still sci-fi so it's kind of that in kind of almost in between place that feels like spielberg 100 percent. this doesn't feel like a spielberg who gave you one of his entertainment films or you know saving private ryan or something this is like spielberg experimenting in a way i've never seen him do and coming off of ai which i think is very interesting from uh just a time and place perspective of where maybe his head was at this is him having done some different stuff with AI and, it, you know, not really quite working. So he kind of kept pushing it. So you get this sci-fi noir Hitchcock movie that's super philosophical and political and it doesn't look anything like a Spielberg film. He just went into it with such different ideas. God, yeah, and I, the I... look of the film, too, if we can stop for a second. Nick, you mentioned he did AI, which most people, I think, will remember from that ultra-bright poster and trailer. Like, that is a very overexposed film, but that still doesn't quite put it on the level of what we're dealing with on Minority Report. The look of this is so different from everything else that he's done since. So and and in my mind, yeah, in my mind, Spielberg's kind of developed a look. Like, if you go into BFG compared to Ready Player One, there's a kind of digital sheen over everything because he's applying so much digital makeup onto everything around him. Not to criticize the films, it just kind of gives it a distinct Spielberg look for the way he applies CGI. In this movie, he's still using a lot of CGI, but it's not to the same level, I would say. It's kind of enhancements to things, whereas, you know, nowadays, if he made this movie, I'm sure it'd be all on one big CGI set. Yeah. And the, the look of the film itself, though, beyond just the use of CGI, but the way everything has been covered in, like, brightness and white spaces... Color has been desaturated, but it leaves these deep shadows. In my mind, it's almost like the entire thing takes place in like an Apple store <sighs> while still retaining the look of a film noir. Yeah, it looks it looks dirty. Like everything yeah. about the world looks dirty, and that's very strange and different from Spielberg. Like he did bleach uh, bypass on it. Like yeah. super turned up the lighting so it's almost black and white. 
And he doesn't do Spielberg camera moves with that look either, which is very intriguing. Like it, it has, there's a certain feeling when it comes to film noir where everybody feels like their moral compass is off because of the look of the film. <laughs> like it, it's, it's a hard like thing to capture, but once again, it's Spielberg doing it. That's just interesting to me. Like he doesn't do like grimy looking things. Like he creates this like cool, interesting, futuristic world. He wanted to be very realistic and then makes it look like this. Yeah, I, I kind of view this whole like early 2000s period in Spielberg's career as his big artistic midlife crisis. Because this is the period that gave us, you know, movies like Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, The Terminal, and like you mentioned, AI, like, aka that time Steven Spielberg thought he could direct a Stanley Kubrick movie. <laughs> Spielberg seemed, uh, Spielberg seemed kind of fed up with Spielberg at this point, and he seemed to definitely be throwing everything he could at the wall to just see what interested him again. Plus, if you think about the guy's career, he'd been hitting box office gold since the 70s. You know, he had Jaws and he's got E.T. and the Indiana Jones series. There, there's so much he's contributed to cinema for like a 30-year stretch at this point. I imagine he's got to get a little tired of that and do something different at points and want to kind of branch out. I think, yeah, and, and thinking about it, Besides stuff like Schindler's List, we kind of started getting to more serious Spielberg with things like Munich and Saving Private Ryan around the late 90s. So it was a little bit of a transitionary period for him. Although he could have added jetpacks to Saving Private Ryan. That really would have improved the levity. Earn this. <laughs> hey, we never know. He did go back and, you know, add flashlights and walkie-talkies to E.T. So we don't know what <laughs> some kind of special edition for Saving Private Ryan will be like. Or Munich. And today... In today's political climate, we can't have all these Nazis. <laughs> They're replaced with angry BFGs. <laughs> oh, God, it's like a Lord of the Rings end to war. I want to see this version. <laughs> One last comment about the look of the film, though. I, I know this is a cheap source and it's just sitting around on Wikipedia, but I, I love the phrasing of this. Uh, Elvis Mitchell of the New York Times commented that the picture looks like it were shot on chrome caught on the fleeing bumper of a late 70s car. Which is such a wonderful way to describe the look of Minority Report. I, I really love that. And to go off of what Mike said about the technology in the film making it feel grounded, that was another commentary point from Spielberg, how the movie takes place in, what, the year, like, 2054? Yeah, 2054. I think, yeah. 2054. So it's not that far in the future. I mean, it's it's been a while since the movie came out. It was made in 2002. But still, that was not even a huge leap into the future when Spielberg was making this. So he tried to avoid some things that were way, way out there. Uh, in the year 2019, looking forward, it seems like some of the inventions are still quite a ways off. I, d I don't know if we'll ever have like a, a magnetic car system and automatic driving cars, at least in 2050. They keep threatening it. But right now, you know, our self-driving cars are still like getting hit at stop signs. They're so still trying, though. They're pushing for it. I just don't see it happening that soon. Maybe I'll eat my words in 20 years. Who knows? That was the saddest thing uh, in that interview, too, where Spielberg's like, me and the smartest people in the world got together to imagine the future. And we all agreed that fossil fuels would be irrelevant in just a couple of years. <laughs> oh, the dreams yeah. of people with oh. IQs. <laughs> but you, you look at the technology in the film... And I think the philosophy he said he went with was, if we throw too much of it at you, you're going to forgive how much some of it doesn't make sense. Like, you're not going to single anything out if we give you, like, 50 new technologies and kind of bury you with them and put them in the background. That said, there's a lot of really kind of prescient things here. Uh, the motion controls that Tom Cruise uses to go through the memories, that doesn't seem too far off from something like PlayStation's, you know, VR system. I mean, made more useful, but... <laughs> you know, it's there. Uh, I don't think we'll ever get police with jetpacks, but that's been like a future dream forever. So I can't fault him for trying to put that in. <laughs> Holograms, same kind of deal. But stuff like the advertisements that are specified to you based off of retina scans. Tailored I ads. I don't know how likely that is, like the retina thing. But if a company could do it, they would. Well, that's the thing. I'm fascinated by the odd 
bootstrap paradox that this movie <laughs> provides us because I-, I lie awake at night thinking sometimes were we always going to get targeted ads or do we have targeted ads because minority report predicted them oh i, th- I feel like it's inevitable that companies would want to target us like even without minority report showing them the way they'd probably be saying they're like how could we get john to buy more fancy underpants how do we get mr yakamoto <laughs> I love how Minority Report created a real-life Minority Report paradox. <laughs> all that all that beautiful technology that looks like an elegant symphony, and in 2019 we use it to swipe right on dating sites. Gotta get that pussy! I mean, if you're really living in the future, you could just rig up like a fan to swipe right on everything that comes through Tinder, so you don't even have to bother putting effort in. The real uh, technology I, like I demand Spielberg... Uh, talking about the uh, the look of the movie, this uh, the set design in this movie by Alex McDowell is fucking outstanding. And I was fascinated to learn that McDowell got the job because Steelberg liked the concept art he did for Mel Gibson's unmade Fahrenheit 451 adaptation. By the way. Mel Gibson tried to make Fahrenheit 451 in the 90s. <laughs> that, was, that was a revelation. <laughs> what would that have been? And would it have looked like Minority Report? You're not blessed enough to know. The world just wasn't ready. Yeah, I'm infinitely amazed how about the set design, the technology, even the way exposition is handled. This feels like a far-flung future that still feels very, very tangible and still fairly practical and believable. And it's very rare that science fiction movies are able to pull that off, especially when they they get super speculative. Well, I always love it when you go back to sci-fi films made in like the 70s and 80s, and they're always the far-flung date of 2019, and, and then it's like a completely different world than what we're currently in. I'm but sorry, you gotta Cody. roll with it. It's the far-flung future of 1985. Get it right. <gasps> I'm just thinking, looking at stuff like Blade Runner and just the, the kind of future they expected us to have. Not quite there. Or Logan's Run or any of those where they predict like 40 years in the future and then completely miss the mark. Transformers. <laughs> well, that's the brilliance of Minority Report and how gritty and sticky and disgusting it is. I. The thing all those speculative stories get wrong is they expect the future to be sleek and efficient when not, it's more like Brazil. Right? The, f- the future is today, but with more toys and ads. <laughs> and I do really enjoy the way the film approaches its sci-fi setting. I think a lot of films would rather use sci-fi as more of a window dressing. Uh, not to throw shit, but I, I recently watched Hotel Artemis. And while I enjoyed that movie... The sci-fi setting is like kind of an afterthought. They they use it, but to a minor degree. You could easily rewrite that as a contemporary piece if you wanted to, and it wouldn't be that hard to understand. But with Minority Report, the whole thing is intertwined with its setting. Like It's the speculative idea of what if we let our technology keep going to the point of eliminating privacy? Where does it end? How does that impact policies? How does that impact our daily life? And yeah, it's it's speculative fiction. But it has to use the setting to enforce that. And it all plays together so nicely. Now, there's so much quiet world building and such efficient use of exposition in this movie where you never feel like you have a future scenario being spoon fed out to you. There's never any, whoa, look at this crazy thing we're predicting. It all feels very natural. And the first 15 minutes of the movie, that opening kind of set piece, it's. Stunning. There, there's so much information packed into there, uh, but it, it blends exposition. There's foreshadowing, action, plot. It's all there. That first 15 minutes is absolutely brilliant. I love everything about it, and it doesn't waste any time. We jump right in. They get the vision from the precog, which kind of gets you a little weirded out because there's just a bald lady in a pool of water saying murder, which throws you off. It's followed by Tom Cruise immediately jumping into action to say, hey, we've got a prevision, and then flipping through these as he's trying to piece together a murder that's about to happen, which says everything about his job. You learn it right there and very quickly without them having to stop and explain to you all the different pieces for 15 minutes. 
They don't have time because a murder's about to happen. They've got to run through that into an action scene, and it's all done so smoothly. It gets you all the information you need, it hits all the marks, and keeps charging forward. I mean, this movie is long. It's it's just under two and a half hours. So I'm very glad they don't waste 40 minutes of that in the opening, just going over the rules of the world and making you sit there, listen to a lecture before they can get into some of the deeper ends of the movie. It's that, just fantastic. That entire opening is why Spielberg is a cinematic god. The amount of just <laughs> visual storytelling going on to set you to set you up for the entirety of the film in just 14 minutes is fucking incredible. Yeah, the opening of seeing John Anderton go through a normal process for his job, it's fantastic because without telling you anything, you know all the challenges he's going to have later when he has to beat the system. He goes through several witnesses. He sees all the logging happening. He's got a partner in the room with him. There's the uh, wood balls with the names ingrained on top of them, the visions on the board. You see all the clues for the thing... It's almost like in a heist movie where they lay out the building and you have to figure out all the pieces you're going to have to get through. In the first 15 minutes, we get that, but we don't have time to focus on it because it's, we're already in an action scene by the time this is all done. And, and game yet, up. you know, 30 minutes later, whenever this happens, I can't remember the exact time they actually reveal his, his uh, predicament. You get to see all the ways that's changed from the first run through. And boy, it's it's like you said, it's wonderful visual storytelling. He doesn't have to stop and explain to you, this time it's different. You instantly get it because you've seen it done right once. Yeah, it also, um, very importantly, shows you a murder that's literally seconds away from happening. So you don't have any kind of deniability that like, oh, it's all, it, it, it's all super, it's all very murky or, you know, everything could go wrong. What you see the precogs actually stop a murder right up front, which I think makes everything else that happens more interesting because you have that in the back of your mind. They make it very clear that the precogs are never wrong. That's what I find uh, is so interesting about comparing this movie to the short story, which is much different, uh, oh, both yeah. in storytelling, like like both in plot and in how Dick feels about the precogs. <clears throat> no one really wants to adapt Philip K. Dick. Not, <laughs> not page for page. They like his ideas, um, but... By and large, I can think of like one of his adaptions that really stayed close to the book, and that's A Scanner Darkly. Uh, and, and that one didn't light the world on fire box office-wise either, so it's, it might be interpreted that audiences don't care for his ideas writ large on the screen. Or yeah, sp I, specific philosophies, I should say. I mean, obviously they love his worlds. I'm just disappointed that Minority Report, the short story, is just called Minority Report. And not uh, we'll save that murder for next Tuesday. <laughs> we can get them for you wholesale. The future. Philip K. Dick uh, short stories have my favorite weird old man titles. I love them dearly. But but yeah, in the story, it being a Philip K. Dick story, Anderton is a pudgy middle-aged man who is not heroic or impressive in any way. And it has a much more optimistic uh, view of pre-crime and of the precogs because the entire book hinges on the fact that the precogs actually are never wrong. And the whole minority report thing is just a fake conspiracy because <laughs> uh, the, the story is a lot more political. Like there's a civil war that's on the verge of breaking out. And Anderton gets caught about to kill somebody who would start a civil war. But he's basically given the choice that Sidow has at the end of the movie. Or, okay, I kill this person and go to jail, or I don't kill them, and the precogs are wrong. And this guy's going to use the precogs being wrong to stage a military coup. And it's just Anderton and Witt were trying to work their head around the logistics. <laughs> of how they would deal with it. Like, it's mostly just a long logic problem yeah. about how the precogs would work. That's and even the, the amazing I thing about Phil K. Dick adaptions, like, they, they typically get made into, like, action films. Think of, like, Total Recall or something. But in truth, almost all of his stories are just, like, <laughs> philosophical experiments. Yeah, they're they're like weird fables. Like, how do you get the fox and the sandwich and the rabbit across the raft at the same time? <laughs> right down to the end game, because the... I, the ending of the story is that 
all three of the precogs have minority reports because of a because of an odd paradox they never noticed where Anderton was going to kill the guy in the first place because he was going to kidnap them. But then he saw that he was going to kill him, which caused the second precog to predict a future where he didn't kill him because he knew he was going to kill him. <laughs> and the third precog... Uh-huh, has, checkmate! And the third precog then pictures a future where he does kill him because he saw the past two predictions and realized, oh, fuck, I actually have to do this. That's why you never start a land war in Asia. <laughs> and like any Philip K. Dick hero, when Anderton does murder the dude at the end, he, instead of going to jail... Starts a new life in the off-world colonies. <laughs> <laughs> that is a Philip K. Dick happy ending. If there ever was one. one of the newer models. Uh, I I just love how you can take something like that. Like it's almost like it's not as extreme as Starship Troopers, but I feel like it is kind of in the same vein. Where Spielberg and the screenwriters kind of looked at that idea in a modern context and went. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's such a weird attitude towards adapting Philip K. Dick. Everyone seems like they want to do it, but they want to change the title. And then they want to change the plot. But then they want to remind everyone like, hey, this is based on something from a prestigious author. So well, they want like, the world and they want the tech. They don't actually want the story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mostly because, uh, like you said, Dick is very idea focused and also his stuff is very humanistic. Like his characters are never action heroes. They're usually, like I said, pudgy middle-aged guys who are not particularly heroic. It's mostly just about people dealing with paranoia, which doesn't really translate one-to-one to to screen unless you're doing something like a scanner darkly. Or a short film. And even when he's predicting the future, there's kind of an air of like retro tech to it in a way. I'm thinking of stuff like in uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? There's the whole concept of empathy boxes, which, boy, uh, nowadays that would be marketed very differently. They would have a much sleeker name than empathy box <laughs> that you use. Or I think even like the gun he uses isn't called a gun. It's something like a, you know, murder tube. Not murder <laughs> tube, but I can't think of the proper name of it. But it's all the names are really <laughs> kind of like clunky, hardcore sci-fi names. Are you acting like a paranoid, Cody? I heard all about it on the Technopapes. <laughs> exactly. Which we got a little bit of here. Like Spielberg naming the police batons sick sticks because if one touches you, you vomit. Which I misheard for years. I always thought it was a, a six stick for some reason. And I thought that one police officer vomited when he was touched by one because it was basically a cattle prod that jabbed him in the throat. <laughs> I never got until recently that, no, that's the intention of these devices. If they touch you anywhere, you just get nausea and you vomit. God, Spielberg like directing a... projectile vomit is very surreal. I'm fascinated by this is one of only two times Spielberg has directed sex. The, the other one being Eric Bana weeping over Mother Israel in Munich. <laughs> <laughs> Great, now we have to put an, put an explicit tag on this podcast. Uh, I, I, I do think... It's really fascinating how uh, Spielberg and company did this adaptation, like how they put it in a modern context, because uh, I was able to find an interview with Spielberg where the only time for the only time I've ever really seen him uh, talk about his intentions behind the film. He just flat out said, no, this is absolutely about the war on terror. (laughs) Interesting. So by by the war on terror, was he specifically talking about. The idea of like using torture as a means to the ends or Patriot Act. surveillance. Yeah. Just surveillance. Okay. That, that yeah, makes more sense. Because that shit was like, this was pretty much, I believe, in development, like in the months following 9 11, like in the immediate yeah, it, it uh, crisis had to of Afghanistan. It, it came out in June 2002. So, and I, you know, I the whole thing worth... was developed in the wake of September 11th. Yeah, it was in development for years before that, but it was around that time that they punched out the that they were able to punch out like one last big rewrite because Cruise was uh, overscheduled with Mission Impossible Two. So think about that: we have a political minority report because of Tom Cruise's exploding sunglasses. We need to one day do a movie just on the fucking ripple effect of Mission Impossible Two being a fucking clusterfuck. 
<laughs> the most important bad movie in modern movie history. I'm still just flummoxed, though, that apparently this was at one point thought of as a sequel to Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's I how fucking it started. love that. In, in the 90s. <laughs> so the 90s Arnold dealing hey. with precogs on Mars. <laughs> Look, I'm always happy for more 90s Arnold. Uh, just imagining the things he could have done makes me sad. But boy, would, uh, the world would have been worse off if this just got knocked into a Total Recall sequel. God, they could running! They could have just made that, honestly, without having it, you know, rip off Minority Report. I see no reason why those two had to be the same thing. And instead, we got neither. I like how their reasoning was, well, Mars already has mutants. <laughs> We're halfway to fucking psychics. I What I love... Is you look at minor, you look at Total Recall and go, well, clearly to sequelize this, we need another Philip K. Dick story. Because we can't, we th- th- we don't want to go too far away from the original. <laughs> also confusing though, because Philip K. Dick wrote so many stories. The man was a writing machine. All pretty much in the same universe, so you can use any of them. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't get why they thought. Well, then again. Minority Report wasn't like a high-profile story before Steven Spielberg picked it up. It was just another Philip K. Dick book. So I have a catchy title. True, yeah. And for once, they didn't change the title. Out of curiosity, how many times have they changed the title of his adapted works? Like, I feel like the Adjustment Bureau... Almost all of them. Yeah, I feel like the Adjustment Bureau probably wasn't called the Adjustment Bureau in book form. Blade Runner Runner was one of the more insane changes. I like how (laughs) Ridley Scott just said, I bought the rights to this thing. Why not? I mean, Blade Runner sounds cool. It sounds cool. It's definitely way more catchy than Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Although I I like like the character involved in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. I'm convinced that Blade Runner was settled on for the same reasons Marvel went with Secret Wars. Oh, these are two terms that are trending well in the 18 to 25s. But the thing is, they actually worked the word. Yeah, Blade Runner gets worked into the screenplay. It wasn't like they just changed the name at the end. So at some point during pre-production, Ridley Scott got the idea in his head, no, I need to take this other name for like moving surgical equipment and stick it onto this movie. Which, neither here nor now, it's just such an insane idea that worked. <laughs> Maybe that was just in his head for a while. Maybe that was the original title of Legend. I feel like he bought the rights to that story, realized he didn't want to make it, and then he's like, fuck it, I gotta do something with it just so I get the money out of it. <laughs> Jesus, what an evil <laughs> version of Ridley Scott lives in your head. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, if I paid $10,000 for a name, I'd probably use it randomly, too. <laughs> the amount of money you spent on Tales from the Bop. But uh, to return just uh, to the setting and the climate the climate around it for a moment, I think it's important to point out that like, we have a tendency to think about the modern surveillance state that we were living in right now as something that sprang up just overnight after September 11th. But when you really like look back, like those gears were already beginning to turn in the nineties only instead of being paranoid about terrorism, we were still paranoid, like pants shittingly paranoid, paranoid about crime. Were you going to say paranoid? (laughs) Oh my God. Can we make that? I don't know what it is, but can we make it? It's a wonderful name. I mean, I'm like going to copyright it now. Paranoid. And then sell it to Ridley Scott as uh, a name for actually uh, his story about a guy who sneaks medical supplies across the border. From New World Pictures. <laughs> but uh, that's what I think is uh, fascinating about Minority Report is it's very much still like a movie about Dick Cheney's America, but it's from so early on in the world in the war on terror that the fears it's addressing are of domestic violence and, and stranger danger, like fears that were still very close to home and like of the nineties, which works out marvelously for the movie, I think, because I feel like at the time people were much more receptive to that. Like if this movie were people were like the precog stopping terrorist attacks or something, in 2002, I don't think the audience would have had any idea what to do with it. Like, no. We were still learning to be terrified on a global scale. I think in 2002, if that movie had come out, this would have made way more money. It did good. But just imagine if it was an oorah, get those terrorists with our precogs. I feel like this would have made a lot of money and then no one would ever talk about it again. 
Well, I think it would have made so much money because it would have ended with the anti-terrorism team being disbanded for being a horrible idea. Oh, no, yeah. no, no. They would have switched that whole concept. They would have stuck with the precogs are good. They're the reason we got Bin Laden. I don't like this version of the movie you're pitching. No, it's terrible. But boys, we're going to make bank once we invent a time machine. Just, d- just like- American flags everywhere. Yes, I don't the like film ends on an American flag. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I don't think that's a great title. I <laughs> feel like that one doesn't have the same zing as Terranoid. <laughs> how, how, how do we get here? How do we get to racism? Uh, boy. Um, okay, let's let's pull back a second here. This is something I'm really interested in that goes a little past the surveillance state thing. But the concept of religion in a sci-fi movie. Every once in a while you get it. But with this one, I didn't know what to make of it at first. You know, when I first saw the movie, you just kind of put it aside and just think it's a, a character quirk of the film. You know, there's stuff like Danny Whitmer and his rosemary beads that are featured very prominently. You just kind of think, oh, well, they, they just want you to know his character is Catholic, whatever. But on the repeat viewing I did to prepare for this episode, it, it all started to make a lot more sense to me. You have just different scenes like uh, the other cops telling John Anderton that they feel more like clergy than cops. And there's the idea that this is kind of a temple or a shrine, and these are goddesses in some way, and people worship the precogs. That idea is kind of firmly planted in there that what they're doing isn't justice in a legal sense, it's justice in a divine sense. And as such, the people that go through and carry out the will of the precogs aren't normal people. They're, they're special people, they're above the law, and they can do what they want. And I think you see this idea quite a bit in John Anderton. I mean, he's a cop in a surveillance state, and yet somehow he gets away with doing drugs all the time. (laughs) Like, everyone apparently is on to this fact. Like, his wife knows about it, his boss knows about it, but they just kind of sweep it under the rug because he's a cop. There's those kind of moments. Or just like when he goes in to talk to Tim Blake Nelson, you know, he's told, oh, you can't take records out of here. And he just tells the guy, eh, anything else illegal happening? And he walks away with the records. Or if you look above Anderton to his boss, uh, Saito's character is essentially abusing the entire system to cover up the fact that he got away with murder and more so doesn't care if it's not always accurate. He is more interested in using the system basically to promote his own fame. He wants to be promoted as some sort of religious figure and be worshipped. So in my mind, all the little things it's trying to comment about in religion terms are comparing it to the idea of absolute power corrupts absolutely. And in a future state with surveillance everywhere, that's a lot of power to give to the people above you. Yeah, I think it definitely speaks to something that's just inside the human soul for whatever reason. Like, even if you live in a very uh, logic-based future where religion is conceivably scrubbed from you know, affairs of the government, there's still that innate human desire to project infallibility over whoever's above us and whoever is supposed to be in charge of protecting us. Yeah. Like, yeah. And there, there's one scene too, John Anderson, when he's first on the run from the police, they corner him. This is the, the jetpack fight before that fight happens. He repeats the line. Everybody runs about 50 times. It's it's, I think it's the tagline <laughs> of the poster. And it, at first you could just take this as, you know, he's, he's just dealing with the situation by repeating a phrase. But going off of that idea that I just presented that, I I think this is really more about how Anderson feels he's a cop above the law because he's practicing something divine. That line, everybody runs, can be interpreted as him realizing, oh, I'm an everybody. I'm not special. I'm going to run just like everyone else. I am put in the same predicament as everyone else. I'm part of the system, not above the system. Because earlier than that, I mean, we got to see John Anderson use his special knowledge of the system, basically cheat his way out of it. The guys at pre-crime give him a special you know, five minute head start before they sound the alarms. He's able to turn off all the notification systems that let people know, hey, something's wrong with the system. The guy is cheating left and right, and that's the only way he gets as far as he does. And this is the turning point where he realizes, wait, this isn't right. I'm being put in the footsteps of everyone else who's come before me. And maybe I don't like it as much as I thought I did. Because before that, he was a steadfast apostle, essentially, for uh, the, the director. I, I'm very impressed that you were able to pull that much meaning out of that because all I could think upon my rewatch was, wow, this is the Tom Cruise mission statement. 
<laughs> this is his Uncle Ben moment where he realizes that every man <laughs> must run. And then every movie after that is just Tom Cruise running in the trailer. Actually, that's a valid interpretation, too. It, it is. Uh, Cruise's arc is kind of uh, a humbling experience like um, a Bible parable, almost. And it's actually, Anori Report is probably the least amount of religious stuff Spielberg's ever put in a movie. And he's made Hook. So that's saying something. <laughs> but it's still there. It's very strong, but it's usually when Spielberg uses it, uses it it's in a mo more, it has more overt meaning, I find. Um, and not literally just, you know, God burning Nazi faces off. But <laughs> with, with Minority Report, it's almost being used as shorthand. Um, and maybe Spielberg's almost doing it more for himself in that regard, but maybe more a way to communicate to the audience, like uh, using religions, almost uh, using layman's terms to um, explain some of the more philosophical elements. Because even with Anderton, when he, when he first sees the video of the uh, prediction of him committing murder, you watch him process it. He doesn't immediately go into, you know, someone's framing me or... or or something's wrong. He believes so steadfastly in the system that it's going to come out the other side in his favor. Like it's going to fix itself. Like the system's not wrong. And it's very, you know, religion's infallible. Like it, you, the faith is so strong that that's just how it's going to shake out. And he seems to be being pushed further and further as the movie goes until about the midway point where he has to finally make the choice that, okay, the system is completely wrong, and I have to go outside of it and figure out what the fuck actually happened, where his faith actually falls apart. Yeah. And to add on to that, there, there's Colin Farrell's character, Danny Whitmer, who we're introduced to as kind of a sleazeball that we don't like, but in the end turns out to be pretty correct about most of the problems of the system. Yeah. So he's he kind of does a, a turn there without ever becoming a good guy. We just realize, oh, he's not as bad as we thought. But his main sticking point is he says the system is perfect. It's the humans that are flawed. The humans are the flaw in the system, which I would say is the, the problem for sure. I mean, in this case, they have a system that apparently works, but there's human beings that have abused the system and trust in it too much. And that causes a flaw. The pre-crime unit is essentially flawed because the people who run it are flawed and the same thing I would say about religion in general. It could be a promising thing, but the people who practice it often abuse that power or use it in a corrupted sense. And because we trust in the system, we trust in the people that practice it, even though those people are flawed. And I think yeah. the movie does a good job of trying to explain how, oh, it's all fucked because people. <laughs> but that on the poster. It doesn't sell as well as everybody runs. One other little interesting religion thing I picked up, and I'm not quite sure to make of yet, uh, but when... Tom Cruise runs at night to go get his clarity. His drug dealer, the blind man, approaches him with the phrase, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Which I did a little search on that, and that's actually derived from the Genesis Rabbah. So, basically the Jewish version, I guess, of the Genesis story. Uh, I am by no means a scholar of the Torah, so <laughs> someone who's Jewish, please correct me if any of this <laughs> makes no sense. It sounds the, more metal than our version of Genesis, I have to say. Oh. Uh, but the, the literal translation from there, going, going off the internet, which is never wrong, uh, in the street of the blind, the one-eyed man is called the guiding light, which I think that literal translation holds a little bit more closely to my interpretation of how religion is used in the film and how we believe in the people that practice religion. They're essentially acting as guiding lights to the rest of us who are blind and we trust in them, even though they don't have perfect vision themselves. Yeah, or yeah, maybe yeah. that was just to set up the fact that you know, John's going to have to have his eyeballs ripped out later in the film. <laughs> I don't know. It could be both. <laughs> I think it's both. I, I think there's definitely something to be said about, like you said, the amount of faith that's put into Anderton, despite the fact that he has no business running pre-crime at all with his personal problems and his addiction. Like, in, in a sense, he is the one-eyed man leading the blind. Well, and even, even the director is a terrible person. Max von Sydow's director, Burgess, is just a bad dude all around and yet everyone trusts in him unfailingly even danny whitmer just lays out the entire plot to this guy without stopping to think oh i might have you know taken precautions and told other people my idea before going right to the sop dogs whoops it's <laughs> the weird thing is he had that's not his actual 
boss. I don't understand why he's doing this. He was sent from like the actual attorney general. Go to your actual boss. He lives in D.C., I'm sure. He's Max von Sydow, Cody. He's a very gentle man. You don't usually expect Max von Sydow to have a gun and then blow your guts out. Like a gangster? Oh, speaking of that scene, though, just a little bit of an aside. I love the cinematography there of trying to avoid like uh, an uncharacteristic, uncharacteristically dark Spielberg moment. We get Danny Whitworth's head essentially blown off at close range by a gun, but the folds of Sydow's coat cover the area where his face would be, so you just hear the gun go off and the body slump over. <laughs> that little bit of masking is so well done. Spielberg you almost think you're trying to, to aim for a PG-13 movie. Yes. Actually, what was Minority Report? Was that PG-13? Yep. Wow, wow that explained it. Yeah, you're right, PG-13. Yeah, yeah, I think Spielberg said he had to like cut out some F-bombs and a few other things to get the rating. All down. from Sido. Yeah, well, I mean, there's not an amazing amount of like nudity or blood or guts or anything. No, I mean, just you see some severed guy. eyes. Yeah, I was thinking just from content, it's it's dark enough where it'd be an R-rated film. Anyway, uh, two things on uh, Max von Sydow in this film. One, I just want to say, Max von Sydow putting on a murder mask during a dramatic flashback <laughs> is cinema. Complete with sunglasses. It was such a well-designed murder mask. That was some yellow shit. It really shit. was. <laughs> just think, every time we see his hands, Dario Argento. <laughs> Two, I love that twist uh, with Sidow so much because it really plays into one of the big themes of this movie, which is the, the sometimes huge disparity between motivation and guilt. Like many characters in this movie have all the motivation in the world to hurt Anderton and don't. Like a Peter Stormare's character who's just a supervillain, yet still does everything that's asked for him and leaves Anderton in relatively decent shape. Like, he does what he promises. In fact, he helps him out by giving him, like, the muscle relaxant. Uh, Anderton doesn't pay him enough for the job, but he still takes the cash he gets. <laughs> like, if that guy wasn't a bad guy, you'd assume he's just a weird guy. If they stripped out the backstory of him lighting girls on fire... <laughs> You would think, oh, this is just a weird, scummy guy, but he's not evil. Just just, just the surgeon from the beginning of Batman. Or uh, Bioshock. <laughs> yeah, I, lo I love what a subtle commentary on pre-crime that is. Like, yeah, there's, there's a big difference between wanting to kill somebody and actually killing somebody, which Anderton knows by, by the end of the movie. Yeah. Well, there, there's so many little invasions and assumptions going on in the movie. The the spider system in the film, I mean, that's such a huge part to me uh, of just showing what an abusive system that they all live in. The fact that, oh, hey, we think there's a bad guy here, which even though they're right, doesn't seem like they have the right to just launch these cameras into everyone's houses and, God, just break into houses if they don't submit to a scan by this roving camera. And it's completely normalized. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, well, the it's kids such cry a, about it, but the parents are like, eh, it's how it is. It's such a beautiful piece of, like, dark humor. Like, it's a short film. It's Everybody just is used to it. You have children who aren't, who are screaming because it's fucking terrifying. Honestly, I think we're about a year and a half away from that, so... Yeah, oh, the and, drones and will be scanning it. our eyeballs soon, don't worry. In the context of the movie, the cops release all those scans... And they don't find anything, and the reaction is, great, we can get lunch. It's, it's such a minor deal that they don't care that they've invaded the privacy of everyone in this apartment building for no reason. And, and in the context of the film, too, I find it interesting how Spielberg presents living places. Like, in the movie, when you're in the city, it's always very paranoid. Like, you don't know if the cops are going to be able to find you. Someone's on your tail. If you're in, like, the apartment houses or whatever else, bad things are happening. But as soon as you get out into the privacy of, like, the suburbs, everything is okay. The government's not in your house there. Like, his wife's house, for some reason, isn't tapped, even though the police have stopped there to check on her. Uh, the mother of pre-crime, whose character name I'm forgetting right now because I'm bad at my job. Her <laughs> mansion is just out by itself. There's, there's no real high tech inside of that besides the hybrid plant she's made. You know, it's old school tea and all that kind of stuff. It's almost like Spielberg's trying to make this point about, you know, where you live in the inner city, the cops can get away with so much more with the amount of people. But in your privatized little home, that's a, that's a you know, an oasis. There's 
no reporting tech there. You have your privacy still when you're out in the city, out of yeah. the city. Well, two things. One, it, it's actually kind of true of life. Like, the, just the way the city works versus the subur suburbs. It's just easier to disappear in the suburbs versus a more dense city. The other thing is it's a, a piece of classic sci-fi symbolism. You're, you're in the densely populated sci-fi part of the world. You know, everything's dystopian, everything's Big Brother, everything's Electric Eye. And when you go to the safe places, you, you ever notice the establishment of them are, you know, lakes, dense woods, trees, foliage, flowers. It's all about returning to the more natural world and getting away from the loudness and the technology and the, the natural world is always more safe. Especially in that last shot, just the absolute tranquility of that. Yeah. There's another subtle thing I love is the uh, the juxtaposition of the weird infantilized fairy tale that the children are told about the precogs' lives. They get their own sofa and their own weight room and yeah. <laughs> all kinds of weird 21st century stupid shit. And where they actually end up in the end of the movie is just a really tranquil cabin with lots of books. So, uh... Thinking about the ending of the movie, this was a weird, weird little fan theory that I caught a couple years back that's kind of sad. <laughs> and I'm assuming you guys have seen it. Oh, yeah. Uh, there is the concept that once Anderton is placed under the halo and taken into the prison, the rest of the film is exclusively taking place from inside of John Anderton's dreams. Uh, this is supported supposedly by the fact that Nelson says earlier in the film, they say your life flashes before your eyes, that all your dreams come true, which is pretty much what happens. In the end, he disproves the system. Uh, he gets back with his wife. She's pregnant again. He is dismissed from all of his crimes. No question. Everything turns out pretty good in the end for Anderton. What I love about that is if that's true, that's just the end of Brazil. Right. <laughs> the, the thing going against this a lot of people say is just the fact that Steven Spielberg would not pull that on an audience. Like, <laughs> not at all, no. <laughs> like, it's not a Spielberg type of ending. And Spielberg's not known for his tricks. Yeah, and there's... It's strange, too, because a lot of the story really isn't told from Anderson's point of view in the first place. And it continues not telling the story directly from his point of view in the supposed dream sequence of it. That doesn't disprove anything, but I feel like if it was really his dream, it might kind of focus on him in a third person sense instead of just having a point of an, uh, like a God point of view to the entire story. Yeah, it's not exactly the end of Taxi Driver. Yeah, so this one has never really sat well with me, but it's an interesting way to watch the movie to think that, no, in the end, you can't really stop what's going on here. You're just going to get grounded by the gears of justice. And one of the other points people have made is that one of the, the second to the last shots is John Anderton and his wife in their house, standing in the rain as John explains that the whole crime system has gone away, which they said feels oddly dark for what is essentially a very happy ending for John. But I would argue thematically it makes a certain amount of sense because John has seen some shit. He's dedicated essentially six years of his life to a very wrong-headed thing that put men away for years on th crimes they might not be guilty of. He's still lost his son. He's never getting his son back, and his boss and mentor had to kill himself just to make this all go away. Like, there was a lot of injustice in this film. So it makes sense that the ending would be slightly melancholy. Things have turned around, but that doesn't change what happened before, and it'd be a little dishonest for this Nor world to suddenly get dissolved into bright rainbows at the very end. Also continues the it, water motif. That's yeah. it. Personally, I would love if they went more noir with the ending. And when Cruz said that uh, all of the uh, people in the halos were put out on the streets but monitored closely by the police, mm -hmm. we just cut to the dude with the glasses from the opening, like in a flea bag motel in a tank top, looking suspiciously out his window at a black van parked across the street. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea that they go low tech with watching them, though. Just They've a dude named Larry who has to follow him around. Flowers by Irene. <laughs> I mean, that's... Speaking of technology, I think that also goes into why the ending isn't all rainbows and sunshine. 
even though this one specific case has been thrown out, the trend of the future really is more surveillance. It's it's not like this alone turns the tide and then all of a sudden technology will stop targeting people or the spiders will go out of use. It, it's really one victory in a losing war, at least in, in the way I perceive the technology of the film. So it makes sense to me that the ending isn't super happy because things are better, but it's a constant fight. It's Think of it this way. How bright and sunny is the ending of RoboCop? <laughs> The ending of RoboCop is everything's still just as bad as it was the beginning of RoboCop and the middle of RoboCop and about 10 minutes of, ten minutes from the ending of RoboCop. Murphy's just okay now. It's like <laughs> the ending of Minority Report is the precogs got freed and that thing that was around for six years that's kind of questionable is gone now, but still the same exact world. And the bad guys won before the film ever stopped roll- ever started rolling. Although that would I want, be an I, amazing tagline for like ninety percent of movies. <laughs> Please come see our film; you'll be sad. Just the trailer is just everybody knows playing. <laughs> but uh, I, I should point out that we do know from the Canon Minority Report spinoff series on Fox that fifteen years later the precogs were put back on the street with human partners. <laughs> now it's okay. We're not abusing them as uh, creatures. Did any, Did you guys ever watch uh, any episodes of that show? I totally missed it. I don't think anyone did. <laughs> I mean, it was canceled after, what, a season? It didn't get picked up for renewal ever, did it? It's uh, a sci-fi show on Fox. It was put on Friday nights and forgotten just as quickly. Yeah, so, so right. it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's why I want to end all of our shows. We'll just dive into this pessimism. <laughs> the bad guys won before it even started, and it doesn't even matter. <laughs> This has been Box Office Pulp. Get out. But just to talk more about the ending a little bit, I do agree to maybe a point that it is maybe a little bit too Spielberg happy. I do enjoy that you can take away that the third act is just happening in Anderton's head. That's too close to Total Recall, though, so it's to me it's kind of derivative. But I think certain things people are missing about that ending. And you could argue that Anderton, you know, getting back with his wife and blah, 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 is the tinge too far we're, we're presented enough evidence on how the precogs work to justify it to the audience that there's not there while there is a gray area with the pre-crime bureau and and how how much it works versus how much it doesn't work um it's very clear a the precogs are mistreated and b it's not infallible the fact that the minority report is a thing that exists justifies it needing to be shut down and the the scene where Agatha is able to tell Cruz and his wife a possible future in which their son lived and what happened based on that shows more of how the actual precogs work and how they're able to break down the passage of time. They're, they, they work more like a Goldberg machine, like everything's a snowball effect. So this event leads to this event, that leads to this event. That scene actually tells you how they're able to predict murder. And the fact she can predict something that totally didn't happen through the same means that she can predict how he was killed, how you know, their son was killed, or how this murder happens or this murder happens, shows very clearly that the uh, pre-crime program has to be shut down based on that. Now, that would be a very dark and arguably ballsy ending if it didn't. But it's not a super bright out of tone ending if it is shut down it because it's based on what you're seeing so i think people are are taking it because it's not super dark that that the opposite must be true so the ending must be super like happy fucking rainbows blasting out of people's assholes i wanted this to end exactly like roger rabbit (laughs) (laughs) and yeah I, i definitely agree also, I, I kind of feel that with a movie as bleak and grim as Minority Report, with a character like Atherton who gets put through, like you said earlier, an almost biblical series of misfortunes, you, the audience is kind of owed just something to relax on a bit. Yeah. Just a little bit of closure, like, okay, everything was mostly fine at the end. <laughs> These pe- pe- these characters aren't suffering in, in calculable be anymore. Yeah, and 
it jives with the direction the film is going. Like I said, it's not, you know, it's not the ending of a theatrical cut of Blade Runner or something. Like these are the steps the the film is is setting up. Like the happy ending isn't out of nowhere. It's what the film is building to and leading towards. It doesn't. I I don't think it hurts the questions philosophically or politically the the movie raises because it ends that way. And I don't think it even gives the questions of morality the the pre crime bureau presents as a clean cut kind of yes or no it's just these are the people we're seeing and this is the ending that's appropriate for them for this story not not to mention there's just something beautiful about seeing those two characters officially let the past go and create a new future for themselves it's another thing that kind that is a through line throughout the whole movie the obsession with preventing death rather than living life my real question, though, is why didn't the precogs just use their powers to win the lottery? I know, right? They could have afforded hair. Zero stars. Get it together, Spielberg. The lottery was abolished in the future. Oh, man. That's why there was so much crime, Cody. Future sounds shitty. And the only drug apparently is clarity, which, I don't know, I think that's just like when you stick a compressed air nozzle up your nose for a couple seconds. <laughs> it just sounds like people are, it just sounds like people are snorting, like, um, dry eyes or something. Clarity is a super Philip K. Dick sounding drug name, though. I still want to know what Clarity does to you. Like, what's the high on that? It's apparently good enough to make you forget your dead son. Yeah, for something named... I I assume it's like Super Adderall since it was called Clarity, but I don't know. It wasn't really productive when he was on it. He just cried a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I've, I've tried or not. Tried and talked along to videos. Also, I have to say, I love so much that that scene is the one moment in like sci-fi film history where they present a hologram, how it would actually fucking work in the real world. <laughs> Just, it looks okay if you stand perfectly still and look directly at it. If you move a foot to the left, it looks weird. That's actually where Nintendo got the idea for the 3DS. <laughs> Before we get get out of here, I just want to say we've never we haven't really talked about Cruz any, but damn, do I think this is actually Cruz's best performance? Oh, definitely. Like I've never he's seen, so vulnerable. Yeah, I've never seen an actor like through performance get across that he's living a paradox. <laughs> I didn't know that was possible, and it's just it's stuff for Cruz that you kind of stop seeing sometime after this film, where he got superhero Cruz and. He's no less Grossman. Well, that is that is very true. Still looking for that spinoff. Still looking for that spinoff. <laughs> what a shame. Come on, Tropic Thunder. You gave us so much. Just give a little more. <laughs> you gave us so much disappointing. Are we, are we going to fight about Tropic Thunder? Yes. I hate you. <laughs> Motherfucker, I have told you for years, the director's cut works. I'll this watch is it only all. going to end in a murder. <laughs> Full circle! But seriously, though, you have to die. And that is just a sound of a ball rolling. (laughs) (laughs) I love how the balls are that movie's version of the loom of fate from Wanted. (laughs) Except not stupid. I like how all future crime-solving technologies have to have a weird analog anachronism. I was just weird out because, like, okay, okay, the wood grain makes it totally unique. I'm like, yeah, so with, like, a system-generated checksum value, you could put that in a database, bruh. Be a lot easier. That, I, I want to make fun of it, but it's like, I'm, I'm, I look at that thing it's and go, It's a great okay. visual. It's, and it's just there for, like, like, it's just there for symbolism purposes. Like, oh, it's, it, the ball rolls down a predetermined path. Sinister Plinko. Like, that's <laughs> it. That's, that's only reason it exists personally i think they should have gone with what they used in the book which are just computer punch cards how hilarious would all of those scenes be with that just ding! tom cruise trying to explain to Farrell how the future works with punch cards like it doesn't quite have the same punch to it like what would he drop the card like oh you grabbed it before it hit the ground that's the same thing as a wooden ball <laughs> We don't use wooden balls anymore. It's the future. future. Now hand me that block of wood so we can laser and lacquer it before we put a name on there and drop it down a tube. All of our trees are robots now. Finally, the future we were promised. (laughs) 
think we could go on for a couple more hours just discussing all the things that are in this movie. Really, rewatching was a, a huge treat. I haven't seen it in a couple of years, and it was Same. great to go back and check it out again. Yeah, I'm not smart enough to watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but Too much going on, but, and I don't like it. It's Spielberg, so there's no commentary. Also, yeah, that was a bummer. We did get an interview on the special features disc, so that was something. But now I have to go murder Mike, and I'm assuming everyone listening to this has to go take a nap. Or possibly rewatch Minority Report. Anyways, folks, if you would like to listen to more Box Office Pulp, you can find us under the name Box Office Pulp on Facebook. We're on Twitter, uh, Stitcher, Blogspot. I mean, if you type us into Google, we'll probably appear in some other weird places. If you want to go on iTunes and leave us a review, uh, I would really love that. You'd be a number one fan in my book. That has no actual monetary value, but you might feel good for a day. Maybe we'll send you something. No, we probably will not. Maybe a surprise. Not. No, we won't, but, you know, can pretend. How about this? Cody will buy a pair of panties, wear them for a week, <laughs> and then mail them to you. Can we do this? Is this legal? I, I think it's definitely legal. It's just weird. Like, one, if I was going to buy a pair of panties, I would just keep those for me. I wouldn't want to send them to someone else. That's way too intimate. Well, folks, I don't know where I was going with this, so <laughs> that's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. And remember, everybody runs. Even you. Then I point at the camera. Yeah, but Cody, can you outrun a bullet? Murder. And like that, he's gone. Good morning, detectives. This is pre I'm going to take a mulligan on that one because I got cotton mouth. Ugh, fucking titty machine. Titty machines. And that's how the episode actually starts. That's my plan all along. <laughs> I saw into this, the future. You saying titty machines and then taking a sword. <laughs> <laughs> mm, just parched. After credit scene right there. <laughs> This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.